This audio recording is of our regular Sunday service, April 10th, 2016, at Restoration Road Church in Snohomish, Washington. The speaker is Sam Ford. More information can be found at restorationroadchurch.com. If you have your Bibles, open up to the book of Acts. So the New Testament says Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, then the book of Acts. Acts is there, the Acts of the Apostles. We are uh, somewhat naturally transitioning from last week where Jesus gave the Great Commission and Acts is the uh, historical narrative of what happened afterwards and what happened over the next few years as that mission unfolded. So we're going to read the first five verses here, and this is the beginning of a short series that I will explain in a, in a minute. So Acts chapter 1, verse 1 through 5 says this, In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do, and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. To them he presented himself alive after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them forty days, during forty days, and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which, he said, you heard from me, For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. This is God's word. The first book that uh, Luke, the writer of this book, Dr. Luke, references is his gospel, the gospel of Luke. That is volume one. This is, if you will, volume two. Volume one was about everything Jesus began to teach and do, and volume two is everything that Jesus continued to teach and do through his spirit. And that is why we are, before we return to Genesis, which we will in about five weeks, we're going to spend times in a five-part series called The Helper, about the Holy Spirit. Now, some of you, many of you, hopefully most of you, know that we are part of a church network called Three Strand. It's a cooperation or covenanted cooperative of uh, about 10 churches now. And we are in relationship together, uh, covenanted relationship together for the purposes of accountability for the purposes of community, for the purposes of cooperation. We work together. We support one another. Um, I'm going to preach actually up at one of the churches for uh, in Bellingham, or he's going on sabbatical sometime in May. Uh, And so we, once a year, as one of our rhythms, commit to a sermon series together, and we study together. We put some uh, work together, and this is what it is this year. It's a series on the Holy Spirit. It's a very natural transition for us because we are, as I said, just ending our study in Matthew. So what we're going to study for the next five weeks is what Jesus taught in John chapters 14 through 17 before he died and before he rose again and before he ascended. And as a backdrop to that, we're going to be looking at Acts chapters 1 and 2, which is kind of the um, manifestation, if you will, fulfillment of what he had taught in those chapters in John. Now, Last week we talked about the Great Commission, and it's a great commission, not because that's what Jesus called it, but that's because what the church has come to call it, because of its scope and its size. And we can imagine that the disciples, in hearing uh, what their mission was, they may have been a little intimidated. It was global in scope, and it was going to require them to get a little uncomfortable and move out of what they've been very familiar with over the last three years in most of their lives. 
It is likely that, as Matthew recorded, that some were worshiping and some were doubting, that some of the doubts they had were related to this mission, particularly, how exactly are we going to do this? This seems like a big thing. We have 11 guys here. Um, How is this going to happen? How are we going to reach all the nations in all the world and preach Jesus and make disciples of those who believe? Now, knowing that the command was larger than what these men could accomplish on their own, Jesus gives them a little bit of comfort at the very end of Matthew 28. He's like, go, make disciples, baptize them, teach them everything I observe, and then he says, and I'll be with you. I'll be with you always. And I imagine that brings them some comfort until a little bit later Jesus leaves. And they're like, what? Like, how how does that work? Like, you're going to be with us and you're leaving. And so he had told them, as we read here in Acts, right before he ascended, so sometime after the Great Commission was given, that they were to wait in Jerusalem. And they were to expect the promise of the Father, specifically the Holy Spirit, that they would be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And if we were to backtrack, which we will, in looking at John 14 through 17, we will see that prior to his crucifixion, prior to his resurrection, Jesus warned the disciples very explicitly, very frequently, that he was going to leave, that he was going to go be with the Father. And he said that his absence would be filled with the presence of another like him. Now, according to the Gospel of John, Jesus does leave so that someone called the Helper, and he uses this term, the Helper, multiple times throughout John 14 and 6 through 16. He says, the Helper is going to come. And while this Helper is going to empower you, give you some kind of power to do what I have called you to do, Jesus seems to speak more about a person. Not just a power, but a person who would not just come alongside them, but actually live inside his disciples forever. In fact, Jesus says something that was probably quite shocking to the disciples in John chapter 16, verse 7. He tells them this, before he dies, before he rises again, before he ascends, I tell you the truth, colon, so here comes the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Now, I think it's noteworthy that Jesus starts with, I tell you the truth. Because what he's about to say is very difficult to believe, at least for his disciples, and perhaps for us. His disciples are being led to believe or told to believe that there's something better than being in the flesh with Jesus. And it's hard for them to imagine. It's hard for us to imagine. We believe, you know what? If Jesus was here with me, if Jesus was present in the flesh with me, life would be so much easier I could walk with him. He could tell me what to do. He could comfort me when I fell flat on my face. But according to Jesus, as long as we are alive on the earth, 
It is better to be helped by God the Spirit than to be present with God the Son. That's what Jesus says. He says it is better to be present with God the Spirit than it is to be with God the Son in the flesh. We have a helper. And my contention is, my belief is, that he is likely the most ignored person in your life. That he is likely the most ignored person in your life. The Holy Spirit is not merely here to assist us in doing whatever it is we want to do or think that we need to do. The Holy Spirit is essential in helping us fulfill everything that God has for us in this life. Now, our world tells us something quite different. Especially in the Northwest, where everyone is spiritual. Right? The world tells us, our culture tells us, that we are to depend upon spiritual experiences in order to have relationship with some higher power or God. Seek out spiritual experiences. Find spiritual experiences. Depend upon spiritual experiences. Well, according to the Bible, the one true God calls us to depend upon a person. To depend upon a spiritual relationship in order to experience the fullness of life that God has for us. Which implies that if you are not depending on the Spirit in this life, you are not and will not experience the fullness of life that God has for you. That's what this series is about. Now, in order to begin, we're going to have to get a little theological. So bear with me. Theologically speaking, the Holy Spirit is considered the third member of the Trinity. Now, for some of you, the Trinity is like, I know what that is. For others, what are you talking about? If I were to say, open your Bible and tell me where the Trinity is, you would look at me possibly with a deer in the headlights look. And so I want to explain to you a little bit, kind of the foundation, if you will, of where we're going. The Trinity is one of the most important doctrines in the Christian faith. You do not need to fully understand the Trinity, and I won't ask those who do to raise your hand, because if you did, you're a liar. Okay? You do not need to fully understand the Trinity to be saved. There is mystery to it. It is difficult to comprehend. But it is essential to believe. There are many things in Scripture you will find that we cannot fully comprehend, just as there are many things in the world that we cannot comprehend, but we accept as true. The Bible clearly states that God's ways are above our ways, and so we have to ask ourselves, do we believe that? Or does God, am I only going to accept God and worship a God that I can fully comprehend and understand? See, our finite minds are not capable 
of understanding every aspect of the infinite and mysterious God, even those things he's revealed to us. But if the Bible clearly teaches what I'm going to call triunity, then the issue becomes less about intellectual assent or that I can comprehend this and more about submission of your reason to the authority of God's word. That is what is at stake here. Now, the word trinity comes from a Latin word trinitas, and it's an abstract noun that just simply means threeness or the property of three at once or three are one. The Greek term used for trinity means a set of three or a number three. It's where we get the English word triad. And unfortunately, the word trinity just by itself is probably not the best word to use when describing the nature of God, though I don't know of a better one. Um, It has been accepted by the church for many, many years. And it's not the best word because it naturally kind of carries this connotation of tritheism, which is like three gods which is not biblical. But that word makes you think three, and people go, well, one plus one plus one equals three, and I go, well, yeah, one times one times one equals one, though. So we have to be careful. Analogies usually fail. But the word Trinity is not in the Bible. If you open up concordance, if you search the Bible, you will not find the word Trinity. That is not a challenge to the truthfulness of the word. I will say that the Trinity is the best word to describe certain concepts in the Bible. It's a nice theological uh, bucket, if you will, to explain some basic things, which I'm going to explain to you. The basic biblical concepts of the Trinity are as follows. There's one true God, one being, one God. If you open up Isaiah chapters about 44 to 48, you'll have it consistently said, there is one God, there is one God, there is only one God. There are lots of gods, but there's only one God, right? God speaking, saying, there's only one God, and I know of no other gods, and considering God is God and knows everything, he would know if there's another God, there's no other God, no God's made before me, no God's made after me, there's one God. We are monotheists. That was what made Jews very unique amongst the polytheistic, if you will, world and culture that they lived in. Secondly, God eternally exists as three persons. He eternally exists as three persons. He's always been three persons. We'll talk about what that means. But one God, one being, three persons. And those persons are named the Father. The Father is God. Not much argument there for many people. The Son is God, where most cults go wrong. And the Holy Spirit is God. The fourth one is super important. The Father is not the Son is not the Holy Spirit. They are not each other. They are distinct from one another. Now, the Trinitarian Godhead, as a very big word to make you feel smart, by nature is eternally personal. It's eternally relational because it's eternally communal. That tells us a lot about God. In other words, he doesn't need us. He is by nature relational. He is by nature committed in himself and has no needs outside himself. That's why we believe in a God who can love because he is by nature loving. Now, 
When we talk about a person, God being a person, what do I mean by the Father being the person and the Son being the person, and especially the Holy Spirit being a person? Well, essentially, a person is one who possesses intellect, emotion, and will, which means that the helper or the Holy Spirit is a person, not a force, as some would lead you to believe. He's just the force of, he's just the power of God. No, he is a person. He, the Spirit, can talk. The Spirit can comfort. The Spirit can be grieved. The Spirit can be lied to. Each member of the Trinity, each person of the Trinity, is fully God. Each person is eternal. Each person possesses all the attributes of God. The three persons exist in an undivided being, and yet one being that has three persons. Confused yet? Excellent. You're becoming more and more biblical every day. The three cannot be completely separated from one another. We see the Trinity all throughout the Bible. We see it in the first chapters of Genesis in creation. The creation itself reveals the Trinity. As the Father speaks and the Spirit's hovering across the water and the Word comes forth. You see in the Exodus, Exodus from Egypt, the Trinity revealed. You see in kings and kingdoms and priests and sacrifices and the prophets and their prophecies all revealing the Trinity. And then in the gospel itself, in the story of the birth and life and death of Jesus, you see the Trinity at the birth of Jesus. You see the Trinity at the baptism of Jesus. You see the Trinity at the resurrection of Jesus, where Jesus says, I'm going to raise myself, and the Father raises him, and the Spirit raises him. All said at different times and in different ways. And you even see the Trinity in the Great Commission. Now, in foretelling the arrival of this Holy Spirit, of this Helper, Jesus points us even to the Trinity. In John 14, 26, Jesus speaking again about the Helper, which he says multiple times throughout these chapters, he says, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I've said to you. See that? The Holy Spirit, who comes from the Father, sent in my name, will teach you things about me, they're constantly devoted to one another's glory, committed to one another's glory. The Spirit is always pointing us to Jesus. Jesus is always pointing to the Father. The Father is always pointing to Jesus, who is pointing to the Spirit, who is pointing us to Jesus, goes back and forth, round and round, to glorify the one true God. If you want to know more about the Trinity, take our Doctor 101 class. You'll get all the details but hopefully that's enough for a foundation. Now, the Old and New Testaments, the three persons of the Godhead, in those Testaments work together for one purpose. You go, what is that purpose? If you read Ephesians 1, you will see that the purpose that God is working toward is to display the riches of God's Glorious grace through the redemption of mankind and the restoration of the world. What is God doing? What is God the Father doing? What is God the Son doing? What is God the Holy Spirit doing? They are displaying the riches of God's glorious grace in everything they do. 
Now, as Psalm 54 indicates, God is our helper. It says that flat out. And it doesn't say, and it shouldn't say, that God became our helper. Because the truth is, God is by nature a helper. And before the world was ever created, God planned redemption. Which means he planned to help men and women, mankind, who he knew would rebel. We need a helper. And that is because we are completely helpless in our sin. And what do I mean by helpless in our sin? What I mean is we are totally and utterly helpless and broken in every way. Every part of our minds and our bodies are deficient. We cannot work as we ought. We cannot relate to others as we were designed. We cannot understand. We cannot confess our weaknesses, we cannot experience the fullness of life that God has for us. We are helpless. Without God acting to help his creation, we will not live. We are spiritually lame. If you think about all the miracles of Jesus, the lame man will not walk unless Jesus helps him. The blind man will not see unless Jesus gives him sight. Lazarus will not come out of the tomb unless Jesus helps give him life. We are spiritually lame, unable to see or even breathe without help. And although the three persons of the Godhead share the same essence, they share the same nature, they share the same attributes, they share the same commitment to help, they each help differently. If you put that chart up, um, Merrick, I want you to understand how the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, you're like, this seems like a lot of teaching. I know, but we'll get to how it's meaningful in your life, but this is so important. When we think about redemption, we think about salvation, they each serve a different way, help a different way. The Father, if you will, administrates or authorizes the atonement to take place. The Son accomplishes the atonement. And the Spirit applies that atonement to our hearts and to our lives. The Father plans or, or promises salvation. The Spirit, I mean, the Son performs salvation. And the Spirit presents salvation, calling us and inviting us to believe. The Father forms man, right? Who is deformed by sin. The Son redeems man, rescues man. And the Spirit continually reforms man from the inside out. So the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are working together to redeem mankind and to restore the world, but they each help in a different way. And our focus is going to be on the Holy Spirit, who before the world began played a particular role in fulfilling God's plan. The Holy Spirit doesn't send the Son. The Father does. The Spirit does not die on the cross. The Son does. But the Spirit has a unique role in our lives as believers now. The Spirit is the one who comes into our hearts. 
The Spirit is the one who seals our salvation. The Spirit is the one who dwells with us forever. The Spirit is the one who sends missionaries out and empowers them to do their work. And the Spirit is the one who unites the church and grows the church and gifts the church. The Spirit, the person of the Holy Spirit, is the person in our life helping us to see, helping us to walk, helping us to live on a daily basis. And yet, He is the most ignored person in your life. For some of you, you I don't know if that's true, but likely it is. How often do you think about the Holy Spirit, talk about the Holy Spirit, dwell on the reality of the Holy Spirit in your life? And to the extent that you do that or not is the fullness of the life that you will experience in Christ. Now in John 14, 16, Jesus says this about the helper again. He says, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him or knows him, but you know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. The part of that verse I want you to focus on is the fact that Jesus calls the Holy Spirit another helper. And he says this helper will be closer to us than Jesus was to his disciples in the flesh. But he is another helper, which obviously Jesus is implying that he is a helper, the other helper, whether it be the first or the second helper, but there's going to be another helper like him. So think about this. If we view what Jesus does for us as helping, because the Holy Spirit's another helper, Jesus must be helping us. Okay, so what Jesus does on the cross is helping us, clarifies exactly the kind of help that we are talking about. Now, we can really minimize the help. You know, I'm glad Jesus got on the cross and really helped me out, right? Well, let's just take Jesus' help away. Let's take Jesus off the cross. A cross without Jesus' help is no help at all. A cross without Christ is no salvation possible, no new life possible. So if the help that Jesus offers on the cross means him dying, what is the kind of help the Spirit offers in our life? And why is it that we believe we can live life or we can live in the salvation that Jesus accomplished without the Spirit? You can't have the cross without Jesus. Why do we believe we can have a life in the cross without the Spirit? But don't we try to do that? Okay, I've believed in Jesus. Now I'm going to go about my Christian life. By yourself? That's impossible. That's a spiritless Christianity. That's a spiritless life where you resist, you ignore, or you otherwise quench the help of the Holy Spirit. And as a result, you miss out on the fullness of life that God has given us in Christ. See, our first helper, Jesus, saved us from the helplessness of death. 
Our first helper, Jesus, saved us from the helplessness of death. But the Holy Spirit continues to save us in the helplessness of life. There are times in life, if we're honest, you feel pretty helpless. You feel like, I can't do this. I can't understand this. I don't know what to do. I don't know how I'm going to survive. That's where the Holy Spirit is given to us to help. Now, we first learn of the idea of a helper in the very first chapters of the book of Genesis. And as I've said before, there are many things that God declared good, but there was one that he basically said is not good, and that was that men, mankind was alone. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, says, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. And we know that the helper who comes is Eve, and we have this picture of this, of this marriage between Adam and Eve, and, and she is the helpmate, and, and he is the lead, and all these things. But let's consider for a second the fact that the creation of man alone, male alone, was insufficient to accomplish God's purposes. He was incomplete. He could not do what he was designed to do because he needed help. It's tempting to read that kind of word and think, oh, Adam needed a secretary. He needed an assistant. He needed a sidekick. Every hero needs a sidekick. Adam's not a hero, number one. And the helper is not a sidekick. On the contrary, the term is actually always used in the Bible to describe someone who brings significant help and often as someone who delivers another from a great dilemma. In other words, without his bride, he would fail. Now, if you've been a husband for any length of time, I know in my life, and right now you're getting an elbow from your wife, that my life for the last 20 plus years would be infinitely more chaotic and difficult without my bride. And she is infinitely more than a sidekick. She is my helper. She is often my strength. She is often the one who gives me very clear understanding. If we view the Spirit as a helper like that, a helper like Jesus, then we will see that the Holy Spirit is not who we think he is. Because we, if we don't ignore the person of the Holy Spirit, we treat him like a sidekick. Ah, give me a little assistance to do what I need to do. The truth is, he's not here to simply assist us. We will fail without him. The Father helps us give life. The Son helps us give us new life, and the Spirit helps us live out that new life. And the fullness of life that God desires for us to live in Christ is only possible when we do two things. When we live in the Spirit, and we live by the Spirit. You can get these concepts from Romans 8, you can get them from Galatians chapter 5 and 6, but we live in the Spirit and by the Spirit. What does that mean? All right. 
To live in the Spirit means to live in a state of assurance in God. Now we're going to go Old Testament to explain this to us. But it's to live in a state of assurance in God. Let me read out of the book of Ezekiel. Yes, that's a real book in the Bible. Good luck finding it. But I'm going to put it up there. Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 26. And it is communicating this coming day, this coming event that's going to happen and change everything. Namely, the redemption of man and salvation in Christ. And he says this in Ezekiel 36, 26. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Living in the Spirit is living in the newness of life that you have in Christ. It is, you have a new heart. You have a new identity. You have new desires. You have a new disposition towards people, towards God, towards sin, towards your brothers and sisters in Christ. We need that assurance constantly. The Spirit helps us live in our relationship to God, to love Him, to know Him, to serve Him. The Spirit helps us really live in the crucifixion. Why do I say the crucifixion? Because that is where the old life disappeared. Your shame, gone. Your guilt, gone. All that you were is dead, and now you are someone new. The Spirit reminds us as that old man creeps up and tries to say, no, this is who you are. This is what you've done. This is what you said. No, no, that's gone. I have been made new. The old has been killed. Ultimately, the Spirit helps us believe. The Spirit helps us believe what exactly? That you're loved and accepted. That you are loved and accepted based off what Christ did and not based off what you did. Isn't that the key to the helplessness of life? Isn't that characterize that moment where I'm so despairing, you don't know what I did, I screwed up again? What does the Spirit come and do? Let me tell you who you are. And you believe it. You are loved and you are accepted and you are approved, not because of what you do, but because of what Christ has done for you. That's living in the Spirit. And what does that do? The Spirit helps us in our relationship with God. He helps us live in the crucifixion that that old man is gone. He helps us believe that the new man has come. And then he helps us to worship. He moves us to a place of like, I'm enjoying God. I'm not fearful of God anymore. I'm enjoying God. I'm delighting in God. I am praising God. I am in a constant state of gratitude toward God. That's living in the Spirit. Many of you who may have been raised in or, or experienced Pentecostal or more charismatic, you've heard full of the Spirit and filled with the Spirit, and you have a certain you know, connotation for that. I'll tell you that living in the Spirit is about living in the assurance of who you are in Christ. And I need help to be reminded of that every day. But then what about living by the Spirit? How is that different? Ezekiel continues in verse 27. Living by the Spirit is living in a state of dependence on God, right? There's assurance in God, and then there's dependence on God. 
Ezekiel 36, 27 says this. And, so he says, I'm gonna give you a new heart. I'm gonna give you a new spirit. I'll put it within you. I'm gonna give you a heart of flesh to replace the heart of stone. Then he says, and I will put my spirit, the Holy Spirit within you, and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. I gotta read that again. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. He doesn't say, be careful to obey my rules and I'll put my spirit within you. He says, I'm gonna put my spirit within you, not just to help you to believe, but to help you live in the fullness and the joy of obedience. And I firmly believe that most of our obedience is about our relationship, not just to God, but to others. But what I mean is when we sin, you most often see that manifested in the broken relationships with other people, whether it be through anger, whether it be through deception. I mean, you look at two-thirds of the Ten Commandments are about relationships. And so living in the Spirit restores, if you will. He helps us live in our relationship with God. But I believe as you live by the Spirit, He helps us live in our relationship to others, to love and serve others, to consider others more important than yourself, to be humble with others, to be submissive to one another. But more than that, the Spirit helps us live out the resurrection, right? Living in the Spirit is I'm living in the crucifixion. My old self is gone. But what? The resurrection, uh, 